Welcome to another episode of Getting Into InfoSec, where we talk with information security professionals and learn how they got in the field. I'm your host, Eamon Elswa. Today, my guest is Elvis Chan. My, my current job, you know, despite all of the paperwork and meetings that I don't want to go to, it is a 10 out of 10. And the reason for that is, I think, the impact that I, I feel like we can make, both a national impact and an international impact. Elvis is a supervisory special agent who works cybersecurity matters for the FBI San Francisco division. When people worry about Big Brother or, you know, there's like, you know, like the nanny state or, or whatever, what they don't really see is like our very strict adherence to the Constitution. He is the ultimate good guy battling bad guys behind the scenes in the cybersecurity world. All right, on to the show. Hi, Elvis. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for, a lot for having me. Great. So... Maybe we could find out a little about yourself. Uh, you could tell us how you got into the field of cybersecurity and uh, specifically what you do every day at the FBI. Well, that sounds good. So I'm a supervisory special agent. I supervise one of five cyber squads for FBI San Francisco. And I've been doing this for about 13 years now. Actually, I've been a supervisor for four years. And then before that, I was a special agent running investigations and operations. So how, how did I get into it? Like the way it works is when you join the bureau, depending on what your prior background looks like, your occupational background, they will usually like band you into certain areas. So specifically for special agents, there's counterterrorism, counterintelligence, cyber, and criminal branches. So you can work in those uh, four specific divisions and they usually will look at your background and, and like band you into one of those. Okay. Okay. And how did you get into cybersecurity to begin with? So that's actually an interesting story. Uh, I used to work in the semiconductor industry for 13 years before I joined the Bureau. And it was actually one of my colleagues. His goal was always to join the FBI. The FBI requires uh, three years of work experience to be a special agent. So he worked at the company that we were both at for three years. And he said, Elvis, I'm going to peace out. I'm going to join the Bureau. And so he applied, got in, and he actually called me from FBI Quantico and said, Elvis, you would love this. We're like shooting guns. We're kicking down doors. Like I'm learning about constitutional law. This is awesome. And so I, I'd always been drawn to public service. And so I asked my wife, what do you think? And she said, hey, like this is something that you want to do, then you should go and do it. And I applied. And a year later, I was at Quantico. And how long have you been doing it so far? So I've been in the Bureau for 13 years now. And you probably didn't start off leading a group in the beginning. What was your first role when you got in? Yeah, so I, I was assigned to a cyber squad. And so the cyber squad just worked everything. So back then we had three cyber squads in FBI San Francisco. We had one squad. Actually, we had, yeah, one squad in Oakland and then two squads down in San Jose. And so we just kind of handled whatever came to us. So I, I worked a, a mix of criminal cyber matters, you know, financially motivated cyber crimes. And then I also work some national security matters, specifically like things related to cyber terrorism, as well as to Chinese intrusions. Okay. Okay. And how did you get into technology to begin with? So you worked at a semiconductor is your background, I guess, electrical engineering. How did you get into technology, you know, way back when? So yeah, way back when this is like 26 years now, 
I feel old, but I actually majored in chemical engineering and, and chemistry in college. And so okay. I thought I, yeah, I thought I was going to end up working at a petroleum company or a chemical manufacturing company. But back then, those companies, for whatever reason, weren't hiring as much, but the semiconductor industry was really blowing up. And so I got hired to be a process development engineer. So at first, I didn't think that would be very chemical engineer-ish, but it was because, you know, when you're making computer chips, you have to have lots of different chemical reactions, you know, that you're layering on top of, silo, you know, very large silicon wafers. And then you right. cut, you know, the chips out of those wafers. So that that's how I got into at least the technology aspect. But I want to say that, uh, learning how to make computer chips and making computer chips is a very different thing from cybersecurity and, and working cyber investigations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Tell us about your first hack, if you have one. Like, what was your first hack, either technical or not technical, where, you know, you had to use your skills to subvert a system, you know, whether it be technical or not? So... So we don't actually do the hacking. We we investigate the hackers, right? So we get lots of investigative training to investigate, you know, hackers, right? So right. Uh, we get digital forensics training. We get cyber investigative training. So the first case I ever worked was actually, it was a, a defense contractor. It was a clear defense contractor. And they actually reported to us that they had suffered a computer intrusion. And so then I had to go and, and check out you know, what had happened. And I had to like, look at all these really old Microsoft server logs, you know, from a, the prior year because they had not right. discovered their hack for like a year. And so that that's when I got good at looking at digital forensics. And then we were actually able to attribute it to a, a specific advanced persistent threat, APT. And so mm -hmm. unfortunately, you know, with the way APTs work is they're primarily in other countries. And so we were never able to figure out who were the hands behind the keyboard, even though we were able to figure out the intrusion set that was involved. And the company was able to remediate their networks and, and get back and up and going. And it, it did not look like their most important plans were stolen, but like there are some very interesting things stolen that, that kind of tell you the mindset of what the actors were looking for. I see. Usually like intellectual property or, or things like that. Exactly. Exactly. It was, mm -hmm. it wasn't like the, the main schematics for, you know, their most important product, but it was more like peripheral mm -hmm. plants that, that were, were taken. Gotcha. Gotcha. I guess what I was looking for in that question was, I guess, what was your first hack in life or just any, any hack um, that you wanted to talk about? So if anything comes up later, uh, feel free to talk about that. Okay. One of my other guests, when I asked her what was her first hack in life, she said in high school, she wasn't happy with the popular kids in school. And so she ran for election and, and won. Oh, <laughs> so, <okay. laughs> so tell us about the world that you live in at the FBI. Is every day uh, you're, you're fighting a fire or, you know, do you have days where, you know, you're focused on research and things like that? What, what, what is it like in your world? So I, I think that's the funnest part about this job is I always have expectations. I wake up pretty early so I can beat the traffic. And I always have expectations of what the day is going to turn out to be. And I would say more than half the time, it never, it doesn't turn out the way I think it will turn out. So there is some firefighting and, you know, especially ahead of the elections. I hope you know that your U.S. government, specifically our, our office, you know, we were doing everything that we could to make sure that the elections went off smoothly without, you know, any technical hitches. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was a little frantic. Yeah. Is there anything you could talk about that, I guess, uh, you know, from whatever you like to now that it's over, you know? Yeah. I think now that it's over, 
you can see in the news that there were n no major hacks or any undue that we could see any mm -hmm. undue influence from outside actors, right? Like the, the mm -hmm. elections seem like they ran relatively smoothly, you know, barring all the, you know, ballot machine issues, but right. we just wanted to make sure on our end that there wasn't any undue foreign influence. And, and there was a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that mm -hmm. helped lead up to that. The manpower to handle that must've been immense. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's the full force of the government, right? It's the entire interagency working. It's not just the FBI and it's not just our office. It's Department of Homeland Security. It's like all of the intelligence community agencies, you know, making sure that we're, we're sharing all of the intelligence of, you know, any foreign actors who might be trying to do things to influence our election. So mm -hmm. there, there was a lot of stuff behind the scenes that, that I can't really talk about, but of course, like, there yeah. was a lot of people working on it. And I, I don't even know if I could put a number on it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, from the public bystander view, uh, it, you know, it's, it's hard to tell, you know, that's really good insight that there is this level of effort being done uh, behind the scenes. You guys did a good job of, of not showing that <laughs> it was a big level of effort. So, <laughs> and, and I don't want to, I don't want to say that it's just a government effort because there's a, a very large component that's the private sector, right? So mm -hmm. it's all of the social media companies. It's all of the technology companies who are, who are doing their fair share of, you know, making sure that, you know, fake accounts are shut down and, and to try right. to you know, find all of the, the different things that, that, you know, bad actors are, are trying to do on their platforms and, and making sure that they're getting knocked out. So you can see, you know, just in the news that there was a very concerted effort on, on the part of all of these social media companies to, to make sure that a rerun of 2016 did not happen in terms of, you know, the fake news and foreign influence. Yeah, that's wonderful. So you're, you mentioned every day, you know, you go into work and you have these expectations and it just doesn't turn out the way you would like it to. I, I think for a lot of people, even in the private sector, uh, <laughs> it's the same way. So you, you're up early. So I think you're, you're, you get ahead of a lot of the, maybe where everyone else is in the office. So tell us more about, you know, the world, you know, you, you, you go to the office and there might be a fire, right? That you have to yeah. quell. But what about the days where there isn't a fire? So... Those days are far and few between. There, mm. There's usually, unfortunately, there's usually fires, right? Because, I mean, you see in the news. If you see in the news that there was a hack, you can be sure that there's at least one, maybe two, maybe several offices mobilized to figure out what the heck happened and to deploy, you know, folks to do incident response to try to help the company and figure out who the bad guys are. So that's mm -hmm. the thing is we we can't control who you know, who does a hack or who finds out the hack. Like on, on a regular day, I, I would love to be able to just like go through my email and, and have like the scheduled meetings that I'm going to have and, you know, like try to get, you know, get through some paperwork, you know, write, yeah. writing reports and, and documenting things. But, the fun stuff. Yeah, the, the fun stuff. But like when, when the fire <laughs> happens, right, usually there's coordination with FBI headquarters and maybe some other three-letter agencies to mm -hmm. figure out what we know. Then there's like the frantic, you know, call with the victim company. And, you know, there's usually lawyers involved, you know, which is fair, right? Because there's always uh, privacy and compliance issues. And, and then just coordinating, like coordinating our efforts versus what the victim company is doing. That, that's kind of like where the franticness comes in. Yeah. No, it's really, it's really good to know. Do you have any interesting war stories that you can share with the audience? So anything either funny or just really interesting? 
Yeah, I, I do. And, and maybe I'm a little partial, but our squad was the squad of record for investigating the 2014 Yahoo hack. So I don't, I don't know if you remember that one. You know, it didn't really come out until 2016 when they made a, a public disclosure, when Yahoo made a public disclosure. But maybe you could explain it for the audience, uh, some background on it. Yeah. So, so what happened was Yahoo had uh, found a, a breach and they believed that it was a nation state. And so then they, they came to us, they like voluntarily came to us and, and, you know, like they were trying to be good citizens and they said, Hey, Elvis, like we, we have this thing. We think it's on our network. We believe it's a nation state. And mm. you know, we, we wanted your, your guidance, your, your suggestions on, on what you guys are seeing. So then we took their indicators of compromise IOCs and we were actually able to track it back to, the, the Russians, specifically the FSB, which is the counterpart of the FBI, and the department was called Center 18. So Center 18 was, you know, one of the main departments that actually interacts with the FBI. We have a legal attache in our embassy in Moscow, and Center 18 FSB officers pretty much interact on a, a daily or weekly basis with our agents over there. So it was kind of ironic that, you know, on the one hand, we're trying to interact and engage with them on counterterrorism efforts. And on another hand, we've seen uh, the fingerprints, digital fingerprints of FSB officers all over Yahoo's networks. And so, oh yeah, we just kept pulling on the threads and pulling on the threads. And we were actually able to figure out there were two hackers for hire that the FSB mm -hmm. had used. And then there were two FSB officers who were responsible for the 2014 hack, which involved the theft of over half a billion user credentials. And so once we were able to figure that out, we were able to, you know, we located them, you know, the two FSB officers are in Moscow, you know, and then one of the hackers that they hired was also in Moscow. But the good news for us was a fourth hacker, one of the hackers for hire, he was, a Kazakhstani naturalized Canadian citizen. And I don't know if you guys realize this, but we have, we're really good partners with the Canadians. And so we were able to tip the Canadians off the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And then they coordinated with us and we were able to affect his arrest. And then he actually waived extradition because we had him dead to rights with, you know, all of the digital evidence that we'd collected. And just late last year, or actually just earlier this year, he was sentenced to 60 months in prison and ordered to pay a $250,000 fine. Wow. Wow. That's, that's intense. No, it, it's, it's like, I don't know if people really understand, like, wh why are the Russians, you know, coming after us? I, I think people are starting to understand a little bit better after 2016, but mm -hmm. the, the way it works is right. The FSB is kind of the, the counterpart of the FBI. And so, U.S. companies, we can serve them with search warrants or subpoenas, and they're U.S. companies, so they have to comply. The FSB also runs investigations, if you can, you know, put the air quotes around investigations, because they're they're typically targeting, you know, dissidents or activists or journalists or like cabinet secretaries for former Soviet bloc countries. So they have to run investigations. They will try to serve a search warrant or a subpoena on a company like Yahoo or other U.S. companies. And, and guess what? These U.S. companies will not comply, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, A, they're U.S. companies and B, you know, they, they could see that this type of targeting is would not you know conform to you know u.s constitutional standards so what do the russians do well since they're not going to comply with our process we're just going to hack into them and, and take everything and, and use see. that for investigations i see i think also i saw somewhere and correct me if i'm wrong where fsb officers can sometimes work outside the organization you know be hired privately for third parties where you know the fbi can't really do that uh, is that right <laughs> 
So you've got it partially right. What, what actually happens is FSB officers, when they get to a, a senior enough level, they can do undercover work, right? So they can get embedded in other Russian companies, yeah, primarily Russian companies where uh, no one knows that they're still, you know, a card carrying, you know, badge carrying FSB officer, mm. but they're working in these other companies. And one of the guys we actually indicted, his name is Igor Sushjan. He was working at a company called Renaissance Capital. And if you were to Google that, you would see there was a, a lot of involvement with different Russian oligarchs and, and that company. And, you know, I, I think in the media, you can see that that company has had some shady dealings, but guess what? They had an FSB officer embedded there and nobody knew at the time because once our indictment came out and was unsealed, he was summarily terminated from that job. So, you know, it was unbeknownst to that company that FSB officer was embedded there. I see. So they have this culture where they work, but they just hide the details that they're actually active FSB officers. Is that that what you're saying? Exactly. I see. I see. I see. Oh, so it's not an accepted culture per se. I mean, well, he got canned from that job once they found out. So yeah. it's, it, I mean, everyone knows it's happening, but if they do find out, I'm sure they wouldn't be super happy about it. I gotcha. mean, the, the companies, right? But yeah, gotcha. I mean, these, these guys, they have good backgrounds that maybe they say, oh, I'm, I'm retiring from the FSB. But, you know, to be honest, I don't think you can ever really retire from the FSB. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Tell us about your, uh, your first computer. <laughs> My my first computer is a Commodore 64, so I'm probably dating myself, and and you know people are probably cracking up. But like, I, all I did on that was I, I used it for word processing, like writing reports up, and then I, I played games on it. Like nice, nice. Ultima, Ultima is the one game I really remember. Those are the games where you type out like, walk through this door, turn right. You know, like you're actually yeah. writing these commands down. But yep, yeah, I remember those. Fun. And then Sierra <laughs> games after that. Those were just yeah, really exactly, fun. exactly. So yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Cool. What's your advice to folks looking to get into information security in general? I think the the number one thing is just exposure, right? So I, I have two kids, right? And and we try to expose them to coding, you know, like I have two daughters, right? So there's the girls who code. And I think just any of that kind of exposure to technology is good, right? So So classes are good. Online courses are good. You know, there's lots of great videos you know, on, on mm-hmm. YouTube and other mm-hmm. sites. So that that's number one. Like, is this something that you like? Is this something that you're interested in doing? And right. then trying to nurture that, right? And then I think from there, then you just build on, right? Making sure that you're, you're doing your, your STEM courses. You know, a, a lot of people don't seem to like that for whatever reason, but really, if you can foster that, that love of STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, that will really carry you a long way. And then for me, I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I just knew that I liked STEM. So I'm in college and I'm trying to figure out what I do. So, you know, you, you try to hit all your bases, right, in college and, and take all the different, you know, science courses that will be able to fulfill a lot of different majors. And then mm-hmm. I took Fortran 77 back in the day. And I was like, oh, this is this is really interesting. And this is, I mean, it was a little rigid, obviously, compared to the type of programming that we have now. But I, I think that's what sparked my, my, my love for that kind of stuff. Okay, okay. What are all the different roles that are available in cybersecurity at the FBI? 
So there are three main roles that, that I'd like to talk about. So there's the special agent role, right? So the special agent is, you know, gun carrying, badge carrying agent. And so we're actually all given the same training, except, you know, depending on our background or proclivity, we, we can be designated a, a cyber agent. And so cyber agents, you know, have all the same authorities that any FBI agent has. But what we have on top of that is we have specialized cyber training. So there's in-house training that we do to train our folks. And then we actually use commercial training, like SANS, SANS Institute is what the FBI uses and, and Mandia. Those are the two organizations that we get a lot of our training from. So that's that's one position. Then another position in, is intelligence analysts. So they don't have to carry guns. You know, they don't have to go in the line of fire, but they do some very important work, right? So they try to analyze the information from our investigations, right? So at the end of the day, FBI agents, we collect evidence, right? We collect evidence and intelligence and intelligence analysts help parse through it and help us figure out like what is going on? What are the trends that are going on? What what are the different things that are doing? And then, you know, they help us pull on the threat. So that's what intelligence analysts do. They have to have a four-year degree too. Um, they don't necessarily need to have a technical background, but having a technical background makes it a lot easier. And, and like the intelligence analysts that I work with that have some sort of science or technical background tend to pick up uh, cybersecurity faster. And then the third position that we have is a computer scientist position. So this is someone who has a degree in information systems or in computer science, and we hire them specifically to help us do n not only the digital forensics, but any of the the cybery parts of the investigation, log analysis, setting up scripts, you know, like running different programs, reverse engineering. So they're, they're like the heavy hitters, right? Like, so a mm -hmm. cyber agent is more of a generalist and intelligence analyst is also, you know, like she has, she or he has an intelligence aspect and the computer scientists, like they are honed in on the very technical details of any cyber investigation or operation. I see, equivalent to like the analyst or engineer in private in the private sector correct correct okay okay and when you said tech background i think what you're saying uh, you need some sort of uh, real world experience before going into the fbi yeah. so when you say tech background is it necessarily a degree in tech or just that you have exposure in technology yeah so i think just having the exposure in technology is the mm -hmm. important thing right if you can talk to it if you can be interviewed and say you know I, i've you know managed this project or i've you know i put together this thing Right. Some of the actual the really good cyber agents I've worked with came from different backgrounds. They came from like business backgrounds or they came from healthcare backgrounds. And what they've done is when they got into being a cyber agent, you know, they they took to all of the, the cyber training that we got, like, you know, fish to water. And, and then then they just go out. and You know, there, there's so many different resources online that you can do to self-educate. And so that's what mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of folks do is, you know, just having some exposure to it. But once they get into the bureau, like really jumping in. Okay. Okay. So is, is there a chance that someone could apply for some sort of cyber capacity and not get not get that? There is. And be placed somewhere else in the yes. FBI? Yeah. So it's, it's funny you say that. So we have this quote in the bureau. It's called, you know, like, whatever happens to you, it's, quote, the needs of the bureau, unquote. Right. Mm. So everything depends on what the needs of the bureau are. So, for example, the, the scary thing with being an analyst or a special agent is when you apply, they can send you anywhere. Right. So you get to when you're at Quantico at the FBI Academy, you can rank, you know, your 
offices. There are 56 field offices and, you know, you get to rank them from one to 56, but mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've known of people who have gotten their 56th choice, right? And oh, then, wow. then they, <laughs> then they end, end up going to, you know, San Juan, Puerto Rico or New York city, maybe, you know, not their first choice, but I think the thing is like, there's, there's good work to be had in every field office and, and mm-hmm. it is what you make of it. And, you know, when, once you do your time and, you know, like you gain your experience, there are definitely ways to get to different field offices, you know, through transfers, through promotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So needs of the bureau at the end of the day, we, we just have to realize that. But, but once you're in a large office, like a San Francisco, like you can stay here forever. Right. So okay. if you'd process out of one of the, I don't know, top 10 cities, maybe the top five cities, like, you know, New York, San Francisco, LA, Washington, mm-hmm. DC, you, you are likely to stay there, but okay. if you come from a, a smaller town, then you're likely to get pushed into one of the, the big field offices. Is that for all positions or just the special agent? Ones? The, the special agent and the intelligence analyst positions. Okay. The other one is, is everywhere. Yeah, but no, like computer scientists, you, you can apply, you know, if you're in Dallas and you want to stay in Dallas, there is a high likelihood that you will stay in Dallas. Very high okay. likelihood. And then also if you're an administrative, you know, we call them professional staff. So all of the administrative positions, you, when you're hired, you're, you're typically hired through the local field office and you will work at the local field office. Gotcha. So say I want to apply for the computer scientist position and I don't get it. Can I then apply for the other positions or should i apply for all three at the same time yeah you can apply for all of them simultaneously well i guess i would be i would be worried about getting placed as a special agent not as a computer scientist right if i don't want to travel for example so so i mean yeah you can you can time it right like it's really up to what what you want to do and what your you know what your place in life is so Mm -hmm. you can apply for all of them or you know, at once you can apply and, you know, if you, if you get a rejection letter, then you could apply for another one. It really depends on the situation. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you talked about the various backgrounds of the different agents. So you have a variety of backgrounds from what I understand, correct? Yeah, that, that's correct. Yeah. We have, we have very diverse population in the special agent core. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's really good to hear. And then is there an age limit? On getting into the FBI? There is an age limit. So you have to have gotten into FBI Quantico by the time you're 36 years old. Oh, that's only for the special agent role. So I'm sorry. For the special agent, you have to get in by the time you're 36 because you can only work till you're 57. Like special agents, we are mandated to retire after we've done 20 years and 57 is the maximum age. But like for intelligence analysts and computer scientists, there's no age limit and you can work for as long as you want. Okay. Okay. That's good to hear you because I think there is a misconception out there. At least I had that. You had to get in before 40 uh, or 36. So for the special agent role, but not for anything else. Like we actually have a lot of good analysts I work with, right? They came from the military and they did their 20 or, or, you know, 25 years in the military. And then they come and we're, we're their second career. And so it's good because they're already steeped in the traditions of the intelligence community and they pick up things quickly. So we, we have people who this is their, their second career or their third career. Mm -hmm. That's great. Do you have any any additional color you can add to life in the FBI? Either any funny stories or just how's the camaraderie, just life in the FBI to help folks maybe understand what it's like? 
Yeah. So, so definitely I like to tell people, so I, I had a good life, right? I was an engineer. I was working for a, a high tech company and I would say on a scale of 10, that was like a seven out of 10. I was using my technical degree. I was, you know, like speaking at symposiums, writing papers, you know, making patents, you know, like inventing things that that was really fun. Yeah. But my, my current job, you know, despite all of the paperwork and meetings that I don't want to go to, it is a 10 out of 10. And the reason for that is I think the impact that I, I feel like we can make both a national impact and an international impact that every single person, my, my current job, you know, despite all of the paperwork and meetings that I don't want to go to, it is a 10 out of 10. And the reason for that is I think the impact that I, I feel like we can make both a national impact and an international impact. And the other thing that I really notice is the, the integrity of the people that, that I work with, right? So in private sector, you know, like pe people are for, you know, the most part trustworthy. But I know that if I like left my wallet with, you know, $100 sitting on my, my table, no one in the bureau would ever touch it. You would never even think about anyone stealing your stuff or lying about you or, or doing any of that. And and I can't always say that about the private sector. So so that is the, the other big differentiator. Uh, yeah, that's good to know. That's good to know. Yeah, I think there's definitely a level of high ethical standard naturally that if you're going to apply to FBI, that that would be the that would be the case. Yeah. But there is that level of, you know, the, the skeptical, you know, from the computer science background, those that may want to work for the FBI, for example, in, in a computer science capacity, but maybe skeptical. So just wanted to shed light on that. I, I totally get it. I, I think what people don't see behind the scenes is we have a very simple mission to articulate. Our job is to protect the American people and uphold the Constitution. Right. So that that is our job. And it's very it's distilled down very easily. However, there's a lot of stuff to make that happen. Right. And so I think when people worry about Big Brother or, you know, there's like, you know, like the nanny state or, or whatever, what they don't really see is like our very strict adherence to the Constitution and all of the policies that emanate, you know, from you know, federal statutes and from the constitution, right? So mm -hmm. I, I will be the first one to tell you, we're not like surveilling everyone. We don't have the resources for that, right? We have to prioritize, you know, the, the most important, the most significant investigations and we'll put resources towards that. And then even when there is surveillance, it is all federally mandated. There is either a FISA court or a magistrate judge who is signing off on all of our stuff. So all of our stuff is, you know, subject to judicial review. I think that is the, the one thing that I see in the Silicon Valley more is that, you know, post Snowden, there, there was this distrust of the government. And I, I think what we can do is to provide a, you know, like transparency so, so that they can see like the actions that we're taking are, are you know, backed by constitutional and, and legislative authorities. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you distilled it down to those two basic tenants. I think it just makes it really easy for anyone to understand, at least for me. So that does that does help a lot. That's really good. Do you have any other interesting stories that you can share? Maybe some fun, interesting things that you you know, you've found in, in your work life at, at the FBI? Yeah, actually, the funnest thing that I've been able to do is this cybersecurity field. It's a pretty tight knit field. And it's not just national, it's international, right? So definitely when I was back at headquarters, and actually still now as a field supervisor, what I see is that everyone, you know, who is working in this industry, they all want the same things, right? They all want the platforms to be used for 
the purpose they were designed for. And so what I can say is like, I have a really good working relationship with the private sector and I have a really great working relationship with the international community as well, right? So we have to work with the Canadians and the British and the Spaniards and the French and the Australians and like the Japanese, like everyone that you can think of where we would have some sort of diplomatic relationship with, we have to be able to work with them. Mm -hmm. And you can count the Chinese and the Russians in that too, because like when there's cyber terrorism matters involved, like, guess what? We have to work with both of those countries too. So that's the, the unique thing I think about information security is that at the end of the day, I would say most people want the same thing. They did. They just want everything to be safe, and that I think that has really warmed my heart. Is is knowing that we all have this common goal to to keep you know everyone safe and to keep the bad guys off the platform. Where can people find out more about how to join the FBI? So they can go to fbijobs.gov. Like that's the number one place if you want specific FBI related positions. Okay. And then are there like any speaking events that the FBI does like for the public or, or anything like that? How do, how does one get to, you know, interact with the FBI in, in, you know, in a either volunteer capacity or anything? I know there's InfraGuard, for example, but is there anything like that? So there are two ways. So you've mentioned the InfraGuard Alliance. So that's a public private sector alliance that that's managed by the FBI. So InfraGuard is an organization and it's, you know, it doesn't cost any money to join, but but private sector folks are allowed to join. If you just Google InfraGuard, I-N-F-R-A-G-A-R-D, you will find that what we do is it's a membership where we have quarterly meetings and we'll discuss cybersecurity. We'll discuss, you know, other types of physical security things. There's a quarterly meeting held at every local chapter. So if you just Google InfraGuard, you'll, you'll be able to find that. The other thing that you can do is you can just reach out to your local field office, right? So each local field office, there are 56 of them. We always have different events going on where we participate in. And then also uh, people can make requests, right? If they want the FBI to come to their conference or to come to their event, they can put in a request and then we can review them and prioritize them. And, and sometimes we can actually participate in them. Okay. Yeah, that's great to know. I, I remember there was a company I was at and they, the FBI came in and uh, did a presentation. It was an information security awareness internal conference to yeah. the company. And uh, an FBI agent came in and, and did a talk and even showed us a video about, you know, things that are going on in their world and, you know, overseas. So it was very, it was very enlightening. Yeah. yeah, we definitely try to get out and do cyber outreach events like that. And I think you and I met at a hackathon, right? At a local university. That's right. So, yeah, we'll get a request from a university or, you know, from an, an organization to come and participate. And then, you know, where, where it makes sense and where we have the time and the resources, we, we try to attend those types of events. Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's super important for folks to have that interaction with, with all parts of the cybersecurity sector, including the FBI. So I think that's really, really helpful. I, I know I've benefited, so that's really good. Well, I'm, I'm glad you did. Great. So Elvis, uh, any other interesting stories or something funny that you've run across? I'm sure you have a million war stories. Unfortunately, there are. I mean, there are, there are times when we're just sitting in the squad area and it, unfortunately it's all classified is the issue, right? So all of the stuff that we're working is classified. And 
I think what we would say is like people would not believe some of the stuff that we've seen or that we've gone through and they would make the worst movie plot because they would be so unbelievable. I think that's the problem. What I, what I can typically discuss, you know, in this kind of setting is fully adjudicated investigations. And, and that's what I, you know, but those tend to be a little more kind of dried, unfortunately, but uh-huh. yeah, that, that is just how it goes. That's crazy. Well, maybe we'll hear about one day. Yeah. That'd be great for yeah. another episode. Yeah, mostly, <laughs> I think, what do they take? 30 years before they get declassified. So, oh, know, wow. Like the Watergate, you know, that's fully declassified. You know, all of those types of things, unfortunately, it takes 30 years. But there's just, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on right now. And I wish I could talk about it. But I think, you know, time will tell that we were doing our job in the, the Bureau. Yeah, I think it will. Well, we, we really thank you for your service and uh, appreciate all the things you do, even if we don't hear about them in the news. It's definitely appreciated. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you.